for him. They're going to go nuts when he hits this thing. Yesterday's price is not today's price. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to the Preferred Lions podcast. I appreciate you stopping by for a little emergency pod tonight. We have some things to talk about, and I brought a guest alongside who will be able to hopefully glean some more information into what the hell is happening in the world of professional golf right now. My name is Joe Idoni. You can find me on Twitter at Tour Picks. Like I mentioned, this is the Preferred Lines podcast. You can follow along there at Preferred Lines. Please, if you're here, you enjoy the show whatsoever. Um give it a thumbs up, subscribe to the YouTube channel. I have major goals for 2024. And one of them is getting this subscriber list on YouTube up. So if you're in here, hop over there, drop a comment in the chat. If you have any questions for myself or my guests that I'm going to bring on right now, I'm excited to talk to this man that is joining the show for the second time, I believe here on preferred lines. Um, he is the author of the science of golf, which we have some stuff to talk about there as well. Um, a PGA tour broadcaster. He's on PGA tour radio, usually following the final group each and every week, Sirius XM PGA host as well at will Haskett on Twitter. Welcome back to preferred lines on this monotonous nothing to do thursday will what's up dude i'm a professional joe most of the time you know that about me um very rarely do i make appearances with a drink in hand but you know it's it's one of those days where we're gonna have to talk with a beer in hand here oh tonight. we're talking with um, beers let me give me one second. yeah I'm go ahead and crack one it's just sort of feels like that day uh, i'm here in indianapolis this is my home base shout out to my pacers for making it to the championship of the in-season tournament it was actually pure competitive sports joy. I needed it so badly. So I'm on, I'm actually riding a little bit of a high right now, Joe, from that, because today was just one of those days and what has been a long line of those days in professional golf. Yeah. And here we are. So, I mean, we'll try and unpack it as best we can, but it's, uh, I mean, I don't know. I don't really, who knows at this point in time, every, every week it's something different. Well, cheers to you. Uh, yep. I'm glad that you're enjoying a beverage. I will have one as well. If you're here with us, feel free to join along and let's talk some golf. Uh, where to start? Um, I've got this ridiculous jacket on for my boys. At I Junkies saw that. I, yep. I saw John Robb was wearing something uh, sure. equally ridiculous tonight. But, you know, one thing I've always come to really respect about John Rahm is in his interviews, he is extremely candid he is mm -hmm. thoughtful he is honest he has a sense of charisma um he is serious when it's required but also down to earth and yep. and genuine when it also feels required tonight didn't feel like that to me it felt very scripted he honestly mm -hmm. looked nervous which yes. i think for all reasons like if he had logged on to any sort of social media i can understand why but tonight felt different. What were your impressions of what we saw about an hour and a half ago with his interview on Fox News? Yeah, I mean, I think my attitude was kind of mirrored by what Brett Bears was doing the interview. You could tell that Brett was getting frustrated by asking him the questions that he thought he was going to get a little bit more in-depth answers to and how it just sort of turned into the same old you know, bullet pointed stock speech that we've heard from everybody that is gone, which I guess sort of goes to show that those in at the top of live and those that are paying for live are still very sensitive to making sure that they're hitting these bulleted points and moving forward. And we've obviously had the smoke around this move for a while now. And there was even smoke today, Joe, as you know about, well, why hasn't it been announced at two? Why has, why are we waiting until mm -hmm. six o'clock Eastern time? Was there literally still negotiations that were going on? Was it just individual or was it something bigger? Some people say that there is still bigger stuff to come, not necessarily from a live standpoint, but maybe even in the negotiation spot. Again, none of us have any actual details. We're all in the dark when it comes to it, but we were sort of hoping that if this was going to be the guy that got poached that ended up getting bought and brought over that at least there would be some sort of semblance of a little bit more information about what this means. What is this the domino for, or at least tell us why now 
And then that leads into discussion about where Liv's health is, where the PGA Tours negotiation spot is, everything like that. And like you said, you would expect someone who has given us some of the greatest transparency as a you know, father of young kids like you and I both are. He's been really, really good talking about being a dad, about being a husband, about all of his vulnerabilities through his life. His press conferences become much must listen because we learn from John Rom. I didn't learn a single thing from him tonight. All I heard was the same bullet points, the grow the game BS that is just becoming nauseating at this point in time. His love of team golf. Like we all love team. I love college golf. That's true team golf. You want to go watch team golf, go watch college. We had the worst example of team golf today in live with this bogus trade that's going on. So on the same day, we're already knocking them for how bad the team golf model is. Here comes John Rom saying, I'm so excited because they understand team golf. It's like, no, no, it was, there was nothing that we learned from his statement tonight that made me think, oh, I now understand more. I understand more of his motivations and it leads me to understand what the pathway forward in men's professional golf is in 2024 and beyond. Yeah. Where, so speaking of his, his ability to be very candid and open um, in the interview process, we can go back to the U S open where he made several statements that obviously uh, highly contradict where we are at now. Um, Almost everyone Myself, probably included in media, in pro golf, have made statements over the last three years that they've contradicted at some point. Where and when do you feel like this shift started with John Rom? Like we know where the finish line was today, yeah. but when did this momentum in this become a legitimate viable option for him? The money is the money is one thing, right? Like nobody right. turns down half a billion dollars. Nobody. Um, but where did this like when did it start yeah i think a lot of his us open comments we also have to put into context were 2022 us open comments so it was the last time we were seeing this sort of Very big exodus of players and his comments at this past year's us open rang a little bit uh, rang a different tone because it was post june 6th so it was post sort of the bombshell that the legislation or like not the legislation, the litigation was dropped between the PIF live and the PGA tour. And that we were getting into this, we're going to have an agreement by the end of the year. And I think as we've seen, there's been plenty of players that have come out, Tiger Woods being one of them who has said, we didn't like not having an idea of what was happening. We need to take better ownership of it. Now, I think as of today, based off of the statement that came from the PGA tour players, um, the player members of the board, Tiger Woods tweeted it out himself right around the same sort of time that kind of defunct this idea that there's one particular player, maybe driving things in the PGA tour that for the first time, really all year, you have a lot of PGA tour players who are making a lot of the decisions that are even at this negotiating table, if you will, or dictating to those who are on the negotiating table, what they want. So I think that June 6th, certainly offered anybody who was having second thoughts or at least opened the door to be like, okay, well, I don't really know who to trust anymore. And if, and if the PGA tour is signing off on, it's okay to maybe partner and take this money, then maybe it, it's okay for us to sort of explore where things go from here. But then six months later to be maybe even on the doorstep of an agreement and who knows if it's going to happen or who knows if there's going to be a private equity agreement with somebody else, but to see how involved tiger has gotten in the last couple of months, Right. It feels like this is kind of late in the shift. I don't think I would have been as surprised if we saw somebody really jump quickly, you know, late summer or after the open championship or right after the FedEx Cup playoffs. But for it to come right now, Joe, when, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the next two weeks with the December 31st deadline looming. Right. It was kind of interesting to me. And, and a lot of people out there, is it a bargaining chip or is it not? And again, if it is, then nothing about tonight's announcement makes us think that's anything bigger than just, they roll the biggest bag out to John Rom, and John Rom's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna take that bag." I know uh, an unbelievable bag that I, I don't bag. fault him for. But yeah. um, a couple of things that you mentioned. So one of the things I think, I think there has been a somewhat of a disgruntlement from John Rom that dates back a number of years. Um, there was a year where John Rom and actually Patrick Cantlay, for that matter, won. Patrick Cantlay won FedEx Cup Player of the Year. And the very first year of the of the PIP program, right? Yeah. John Rahm had 18 top 10s, I believe, in 25 starts. It may be top 20s. But he had unequivocally like the best year. Patrick Cantlay had four wins. They were the two best players. 
Rom finished ninth in the pip and Patrick Cantley was left out. So they got no money. They outperformed all of their colleagues, yet yep. they did not get the Christmas bonus. And ever since then, there has been sort of an outcast feel, I feel like, around John Rom in some of the way that he's been fairly or unfairly covered by the media. But Liv kind of has this collection of guys between Reed and Bryson and Brooks. It's almost like the tour that has welcomed in the bad guys. And mm. the problem there is I think the PGA tour really needs bad guys. You need good versus bad. You need, I like this guy versus I don't like this guy. It's what we enjoy about sports. It's what you enjoy about the Pacers game tonight is you love the Pacers and you probably hate that other team that they were playing and your rooting interest is so there. And I yeah. worry that we're getting to the point where Everyone is such good friends and it's only like the really good guys left and it feels like a buddy's Sunday game or YouTube golf or something that is somewhat less competitive because we just don't have the bad guys in play. And I think this goes back further than we even know about John Rahm. And I think like the hypocrisy from the top and you mentioned the Tiger statement. So Things have changed rapidly there, and I was very interested in what he released. Like Jimmy Dunn and Ed Hurley from the Masters, right, originally brought this whole thing together yep. between Jay and Al Ramayan. And, and I wish in, in sort of learning more about it that there had been like paparazzi shots of this like London meeting between the Jimmy meeting? Dunn and in and like, out of the hotel. How, yeah, it would have went absolutely bananas like if we would have got those photos. But it happened. They have seemingly been on the outs now. Jay doesn't necessarily seem to be making any decisions from my perspective anymore because it feels like he's lost the faith and trust of the players, the sponsors, and the fans. Now this player committee is sort of in charge, which includes Tiger and Patrick Cantlay and Jordan Spieth and four other players that apparently now have unanimous voting rights over any major decision in which they all must agree with whoever they merge with and partner with. Um, where do you see all of this sort of shaking out? And is the tour in the best shape with the control in the hands of these seven players versus outside investors or the CEO or, or, or anyone else? Is it best with the players? I think if all of us are ignorant sports fans, we've realized how, what speed normal businesses work at mm. by watching what has happened in professional golf over the last couple of years, right? Like yeah. live didn't have a plan, but they had all the money and they buy, they, they spend the money to try and rev something up really quickly. And there's a ton of rollout issue and it's a flawed product in many ways, but they can continue spending because they have unlimited money to be able to do it. Meanwhile, the PGA tour, a massive organization that kind of has a plan in place, or they think at least a plan in place moving forward gets disrupted so significantly that they have to adapt on the fly. And you're just not able to pivot. You can't turn that massive ship around on a dime and do a 180 that quickly. It's just, it's, it's just too bogged down. Like massive corporations aren't going to be able to change everything that they do about business over the course of a couple of months. And so what I think we've seen in all of this is, you know, who's making all of the decisions, whether they're being sort of filtered down through the system or not. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, that's not working. Well, now we have to figure out a new communication structure up and who are the people that are actually involved. You know, five years ago, did players really want to have a say on every single thing that was going on in the PGA Tour? No, because they were happy. They were the only show in town and they wanted to focus on what they do. And that is play golf for a living. And then all of a sudden things happen. And it's it's so sad to me, Joe, because hmm. you and I have talked about this offline. I mean, what the PIF has done in terms of overvaluing golfers and their market value in the world of sports is so incredible to the point now where every player, no matter where they are in the hierarchy of men's professional golf on the PGA Tour, maybe even the DP World Tour on live, everybody feels like they're not getting their appropriate piece of the pie. Whether you're number one in the world, 100th in the world, or 500th in the world, somehow you feel scorned in this and that you either don't have a voice, you aren't getting compensated fairly enough, you're not getting as much money as the guy on the other side of the street, so something has to sort of make it work. And so I think everybody, in a lot of respects, has been throwing a lot of darts kind of blindly at things, trying to figure things out. And so now that the players want to have control over a player-run organization, now that they have a majority of votes on the board, 
I commend them for wanting to take over their own organization uh, at the very tippy top. And it's the logical choice that Tiger be the voice in that room who drives the tour forward. And I'm excited to see maybe what he chooses to implement and how many guys he can kind of inspire in this next wave of the PGA tour. But these guys are in, embarking on things that they never anticipated ever doing. You know, yeah. <laughs> investing, you know, investing their time and their treasures in having high level negotiations or sales pitches or creating completely new entities and looking at a completely different way that money is from a nonprofit to a for profit. All of these things, working with tournaments, working with constituents, it's a massive undertaking. And so big. you just you can't like all of a sudden. And I, I mean, I'm not here to to say, do I like the schedule next year or not, or what it happens to be. But it's amazing to me to think about what we thought the PGA tour was going to look like in 2022 versus what we now think it's going to be in 2024. It's amazing to me that they've, they've been able to pivot as quickly as they had, whether you like the decisions or not, the fact that they have changed so rapidly to just try and survive this insurmountable wall of money that Jay Monahan has talked about. I, I think it's kind of amazing that we even, are at a new sort of place. Now, whether it works or not is another question, but yeah. now you've got players that are making the ultimate decisions. And that's something that wasn't happening a couple of years ago. And so that takes, they got to learn the business of it too, which is wild to think about. They're now businessmen as much as they are professional golfers. And frankly, like, I don't think Tiger Woods wants this. No. I think he feels the need to, but Tiger Woods is focused on trying to get another PGA Tour win. He's also considering in five years from now, let me relax on what I've done in my career. Let me go join the Champions Tour. Let me be a father and be a caddy yep. for my son. Um, and, and try to achieve his dreams with him. I don't want to sit in these negotiation meetings with Acorn Financial Group and the PIF Fund, but the reality is, is $550 million, which they just paid for John Rahm, is less yeah. than 0.1% of the PIF's total available yeah. assets. Less than 0.1%. How do you have any place that can possibly compete with that and the pga tour is almost at their no chance mercy to form a deal with them because whether it's acorn media or black rock or whatever one of these groups that is going to have to put an infinite amount of money into not only achieving the purses that are now required and have been promised to the players on the pga tour finding some sort of media deal, hoping that the numbers don't drop off there. Nothing is going to be as good for the players on the PGA Tour, frankly, as a merger with the PIF. And that no. is a very vulnerable position for the tour to be in. Yeah, it's really tough. And Jordan Spieth kind of you know tipped the hand a little bit in his press conference in the Bahamas about it, just saying that there are non-negotiables on behalf of those players who believe in the tour's model or maybe believe in the funding model, maybe believe in the tournament model. I believe in the tournament model yeah. in an old world view. The new world view, when all of a sudden players are suddenly worth nine figures, it doesn't make sense in the new world view, which is really sad for a lot of really, really great tournaments. I mean, you and I have spent some time at what is it now the the classic at the Palm Beaches as a yeah, yeah. title sponsor for the old Honda, and it's like it's one of the coolest hangs of the year. It's a great golf sort of area. They're raising good money for local charities, and they do a really good job with that tournament, yeah. even regardless of how the field has shifted over the last six or seven years. And now you you've got to find a completely different way to work with this tournament to say, okay, we've got to increase your purse because we're trying to compete against this insurmountable force that's coming in here. It's probably going to cost charitable dollars. It's probably going to shrink staff or, or you're going to have to squeeze sponsors or however we're going to do this. It's going to be the, eventually that buck rolls downhill somehow to the consumer when you're trying to turn a profit on this one. And I just, it's just, it's ludicrous to me how much it has shifted the economics of a sport that we love. I love the niche audience that golf has. I know that we can attract a few more viewers, but it's not going to be the NFL. It's not even going to be the NBA. Like right. golf is just trying to compete against a number of other sports. And now we're sort of splintered in this place. Well, I don't really know. And, and this ROM contract today, I think I even texted you about it. I mean, let's take the low end of it. Let's say it's $300 million and it's spread out over five or six years. Cause everybody's saying it's longer than a three-year commitment on this one. So let's go, let's double it. Let's say it's 300 million over six years. There are that would make him only the 14th athlete in the United States that's got a contract of 300 million or more. 
12 of them are baseball players. The other one is Patrick Mahomes. And all of them have contracts that are nine years or longer. Like, think about that for a second. He's the highest paid athlete in North America right now as a, based off of what we heard from it. Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, he's, no. it, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And that's what the PGA Tour is having to try and compete against. And it's impossible. So do the best you can and hope that Tiger's voice is the one that can at least, you know, sort of sway the biggest opinion and influence to find a way towards a solution that at least keeps things going really strongly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the baseball players are playing, what, 150, 160 days a year. Patrick Mahomes is the best player in the most popular sport in yep. America and John Rahm is going to likely outpace all of them by playing yeah. 14 tournaments a year plus the four majors plus what he earns in those tournaments yeah, plus the, what he, yeah. he is unequivocally yeah. and I'm a huge Brooks guy he is the best player on the live tour if he doesn't win two live tournaments that's another 10 million at bare minimum I would be yeah. shocked if he doesn't win those and he's going to likely compete in every major championship um it's just you know, you mentioned like things like the Honda and I worry about the sponsor aspect because last year when they did, when they created this elevated event series, right? The PGA tour dipped into these reserves and these controversial reserves that, that Phil talked about that weren't there, Phil. but all of a sudden oh, come on, Phil, they were there when they, they were always a- there, but they're not 700 million. Like Phil yes. is so full of BS. Like, yes, there were reserves. Was, was the company operating very conservatively fiscally? Yeah. But guess okay. what? It kept the sport afloat and brought it back early during the pandemic. Right. And they spent like 60 or $70 million of those reserves to keep tournaments sort of going. So, yeah. Uh, and, but you know what? How far did they get into it, Joe, last year before they realized, holy crap, we're going to run out of money quickly. Exactly. And that's where it's been. That's what brought the deal to the table, I think. And I worry that sponsors aren't going to, when they say we want to take the purse from 8 million to 20 million. Well, it's one thing last year when they're covering the additional 12 million in the purse. This year, they're asking sponsors to step up and cover that because they're out of money. So you're going to, you lose Honda, the longest running sponsor on the tour. You lose Dell. I felt like, in statements made early on that very much demonized this as the Saudi league by Jay Monahan and, and talking about the Saudi money and didn't ever refer to it as live. It was the Saudi league, right? I felt like he alienated his two biggest sponsors of his premier flagship events, which one is Morgan Stanley, who sponsors the premier sponsor of the players championship. They were the first investment firm to, embrace Saudi Arabia. The other is Coca-Cola who sponsors the tour championship, who does all of their bottling in Saudi Arabia. Mm. So when he's talking about Saudi money and demonizing players for taking it, he's also inadvertently taking shots at his biggest sponsors and they're starting to leave. And I just worry that tournaments like the classic of the Palm beaches, how they are able to, someone is going to buck up for 14, $15 million when they're not guaranteed the field anymore. It just puts me in a situation of, I don't see how this ends necessarily in a good way, but I am encouraged that the players will be somewhat in charge of the decision-making circling around it. Yeah. I, the sad thing is, is we're here and it's always a disruption to the news cycle. We haven't even gotten to January. I get on a plane here in three weeks and fly to Hawaii for two weeks to do the first two events of the season on PJ two radio. And I'm so excited. And I was so bullish on 2024 because I actually, I think that the tour learned a lot from this past year, listening to some of the players saying, look, I don't want to be told that I have to play in these events. Now the money in the FedEx cup points are going to be so extreme that to not play in it, you better be a top player that it just expects to be really good. But I thought it actually offered a great opportunity to those middle events, to the events that are no longer going to be signature to where if it's Jordan Spieth and he wants to be loyal to all of his Texas events, he can play. It's now what the CJ cup Byron Nelson, he can play the Valero Texas open. He can play these events and one or two players, one or two marquee players are enough to keep sponsors happy to keep the people coming to these tournaments. Because the reason why John Rahm is such a big deal moving today is he's one of, let's be honest, you know, a handful of players that really move the ticket buying needle, the eyeball on the TV, all that sort of stuff to do the ratings and everything. And so I was really bullish because I thought we were going to see some freedom in this. We were going to see a natural sort of flow. Um, you know, I think for all of us who are degenerates and love the game, I thought this, the FedEx Cup fall kind of delivered in a lot of the storylines that are away from star power. And so we're going to have these sort of windows coming up in 2024 where you're going to have the Eric Cole story for 
two, three weeks, and then he's going to play his way into signature events. And you're going to be able to watch that sort of happen and flow through the season. And we haven't even gotten there yet. So a season I was really excited to see kind of how it changed the yeah. fan involvement, how it changed the marketing of players. I know there's still a lot to be ironed out about what those, you know, point structures are going to look like and, and how these fields are going to sort of come together in some of these tournaments. Cause they're still sort of working this thing out uh, down to the final wire, but to your larger point, this for-profit entity that was sort of announced, like how does that money trickle through the whole process? Like where, where is, where is the, the revenue that is deemed for the for-profit side? How does that help keep these other tournaments sort of going? And what's the discrepancy between the two of them? That's the major thing, because I think just in a vacuum compared to 2023 schedule, I thought 2024 schedule was going to be stronger from an entertainment. I still believe it's going to be a stronger entertainment product in terms of the types of fields and how we talk and flow through the season. Uh, but the broader picture, obviously, is is, is that financially sustainable? And that a lot of that has to do with what we probably find out in the next couple of weeks in terms of who comes to the table to be a partner with the tour. That's right. And and part of that, I think, and I've done a lot of thinking recently about Jay Monahan, right? I think if this were happening in any other sport, the first face that we would see on SportsCenter and everywhere, if this was happening in the NBA, it would be Adam Silver, right? It would be Roger Goodell. Mm. We haven't really seen him, and I wonder if he's getting pushed out. And I've been highly critical of a lot of things with Jay, but I think that he has made – I'm going to give him some credit here. Bringing golf back when he did was risky, and it worked. Number two, the more that I thought about the decision and the the press conference with Aramaya next to him that was so cringeworthy and felt like him being a total hypocrite – I wonder there if we look back on it in 10 years and say, man, this guy sacrificed every he fell on the absolute his own sword of his own making, but he was willing to destroy his own reputation for the betterment of the PGA tour, because he realized that he was going to get crushed for this, right? Mm -hmm. Everyone was going to rip him for this, but it was the only path to potentially save the PGA tour. How yeah. do you think that he, he makes it out of this? Okay. And how will we remember his time as commissioner, maybe 10 years from now? Yeah, I would say a majority of people will view it, will remember it negatively because of this year. But I have the utmost of respect and empathy, I think, for Jay because of the impossibility of his situation. Like, I just can we are there missteps? Sure. And I'm sure he'd be the first to tell you, like, I could have done this a little bit differently. or We could have rolled the announcement out here. But, you know, at his core, he's a tournament director. He's a guy that knows what it takes to work with the biggest businesses and the biggest sponsors out there to try and get support and he recognized i think very early that the financial future was in jeopardy and there had to be something done and so yeah roll out all those things can be questioned but i don't think at any point in time he's like well how am i going to save myself in this i think it was yeah. like i've got it if i'm a say if i'm a, going back to being a tournament director what am i going to do to save my date what am i going to do to save my tournament what am i going to do to save my sponsor save what am i going to do to keep yeah. the lights on what am I going to do? Like, and if this is what I have to do to keep the lights on, then I'm going to do it and sort of damn the consequences. Um, and I, it, the health stuff was real. You know, okay. I think it's important if we're going to give a lot of athletes the benefit of the doubt, and many of them, especially this year in professional golf, have talked about their struggles with mental health. I think it's important to at least address that fact that the man like worked up to an, an agreement to at least try and keep his company alive in the long term five ten years down the road and in doing so sacrificed his own well-being in order to do that so um I, I do i have a great deal of empathy for the man and i think you're right on that one i think i don't think he cares if he's the one that has to fall on that sword but i don't really know if he or anybody anticipated i mean we were all shocked obviously when the yeah. announcement came out and i think it was more the optics of going back to what you said and it's very similar to us using John Rahm's words from 18 months ago today right. to say, well, what are you doing right now? It's very easy to use Jay's words from the very beginning, then fast forwarding to June 6th and say, well, wait a second here. And when all we're doing is we're 
we're second guessing these individuals, Rom, Monahan, whoever it is, by sound bites that are separated by a significant chunk of time and a, and a significant change in circumstances. It's not necessarily fair to that individual because we don't know what's going on behind the scenes. And so, again, it's hard to really fault in individuals in this whole process. I won't fault any individual that moves from the PGA Tour to live for money. That's their own choice. You do you live your own sort of life. Uh, they're viewing it as a sort of a, a stronger life or a stronger move moving forward. If Jay Monahan thought it was the best move to make for the survival of the company that he was tasked with running, then that's what he went and did. And it may cost him his job down the line, but you know what? He did what he thought was best in that moment. And I really don't know, Joe, like I've never heard someone give me a better example, you know, of I've heard plenty of reasons of how the announcement could have been better. And I'm okay with that. You can give me all the public relations chatter. I'm here to listen to all of that, but I've never heard someone say, Oh yeah, you know, they should have immediately gone to BlackRock or Fenway and gotten the money. Like, no, you were like, you had to get the lawsuits to end too. Like if the yeah. lawsuits didn't end, you were in trouble infinitely in the future, no matter whose capital money you were bringing in to be able to do this. And You're so, bleeding a hundred grand a day yeah, in lawyers. I've never heard like the best solution of, oh, well, they should have just done this because standing pat wouldn't have worked either. Yeah. And one of you, one of the things I think that's interesting that you mentioned there is like, you don't, you don't blame or fault any players from jumping from the PGA tour to live. I've noticed this shift in the players as well, particularly with yep. this John Rom. Two years ago, when DJ and Brooks and Bryson left, you heard none of this. Today, Jason Day came out and was like, I'd take the money too. Justin Rose said, I can't fault him for anything. Rory came out and said, we're going to find basically a path. He will be on the Ryder Cup team. Like We're yeah. going to essentially rewrite the rules with the European Tour to make sure he's a part of the Ryder Cup team. And was very much, it was a different tone from Rory than it was a year ago. And so everyone has kind of adapted this, but the road going to live to even a year ago seemed treacherous. It was filled with potholes. It was filled with people taking shots at you from all directions. That doesn't necessarily seem the case anymore. Um, where does this leave the PGA tour? And do you expect more players to kind of witness this and potentially take the jump over? Because frankly, I don't think they're going to stop spending money, particularly if they merge with someone other than the PIF fund and they go with a Fenway or a BlackRock, what's to stop them from throwing a half a billion dollars at Hideki Matsuyama? What's to stop yeah. them from going after Xander Schauffele, who's a fellow Callaway guy and, and you know, is, is close to John Rahm or Tony Finau, who plays with John Rahm and throwing a ton of money at the wall and just poaching players left and right from a company that they're supposed to be in active talks to merge with. This is just a, a crazy situation. I do love how the Department of Justice said that they couldn't have an anti-poaching clause in their agreement. And so now here we are because the government said you can't you can't have that clause because it's non-competitive. And, and now we've arrived at this. So thanks right. to that wonderful congressional panel who uh, yeah. who said it. They always get it right back. They were great. That was awesome. Um, now, I think. I think the players have realized this is just kind of the reality of existence. Yeah. I think the only fear I would have from the f who's moving and who's going on next is, and this would counter, you know, this would contradict what Liv has said they want to be. Like Liv has said, like, we are a small field. We are going to be capped at this. We want to have these shotgun starts when we're not having A and B groups either in these shotgun starts. So it really kind of limits the number of guys that you're going to have on the golf course at one point in time. Obviously, John Rahm going with all the reports, there's going to be another team added, and maybe there's a, another team still to come if you find yeah. enough bodies that want to go. But the thing that's really interesting to me when I look at it now, Joe, is I miss a lot of the guys that are on Liv that I used to – you know, watch and Me call too. golf shots up. I, I miss talking to them and miss talking about them. But at no point in time last year, outside of, you know, maybe a Brooks Kepka moment or a Dustin Johnson shot here or there, a Bryson maybe is someone who it would be different in a tournament. Did I go to a tournament and be like, oh, wow, like this tournament's lacking golfers. Like this tournament yeah. is really lacking professional strength. And for every guy that leaves, then we end up with a Ludwig Ober type of season who comes <laughs> in and is about ready to be on the short list of major winners next year. We had the year of Victor Hovland. And so until Liv wants to go to 30 teams of five and have a 150 man roster and pay all those guys to come over, we're it's like we have two columns now. We have 
great players here and great players here. And we just sort of suffer trying to figure out how to watch all of them, except for four times a year when most of them are playing in major championships together. And so I think the players just understand that if they, if they're going to go, they're going to go. And I also wonder yeah. You you had to back the truck up to pay John Rahm to make that leap, but he's also probably worth it in the eyes. I'm saying that, not saying he's worth it, that type of money, but for an endless pile of money, it's probably worth it to live to just, or to the PIF to just say, okay, yeah, we'll throw 500 million at this one because this is a massive chip for us to go and get. Yeah. And I don't really know if the bag is going to be that big for anybody else outside of the the ones we know are going to turn it down. The Schefflers, Rory's, Jordan yeah. Spieth's of the world who are, you know, probably lockstep with Tiger, you know, all the way ride and dies on the PGA tour. So, you know, unless one of those guys wants to go for it, I don't really know if it's worth it for them at this point in time until we, unless we get to December 31st and the whole thing blows up and we realize we're back at war again. And if that right. happens, then who really knows what that could mean for both sides moving forward. But I think we arrived at June 6th, not just because of the litigation. Again, I don't think the PIF is in business fully to just lose money. So at some point in time, they have to realize that there needs to be some sort of cohesiveness here. Or else, again, we talked about the Pacers earlier. I'm from central Indiana. Open wheel racing is a religion here. And when I was, what, I was 15 years old, open wheel racing split and cart and the IRL at the time is what is now IndyCar reunited again, went in two separate directions. And it's not too dissimilar to what we're seeing in golf. There wasn't a giant pot of gold that was being paid to poach drivers away, but two like very different philosophical ideas of how the sport should be, how the sport should adapt and how it should move forward. And they weren't strong enough as a sport to be able to take two audiences and then bring them all back together. And they lost a huge footprint of that business and they've never recovered even after they unified. And so if golf doesn't find a way to unify quickly, then we are going the way of tennis where four tournaments a year really, really matter. And then everybody kind of scatters and there aren't local tournaments that really generate the buzz, especially in a rating standpoint or a sponsorship standpoint, the way that several non-major tournaments do right now in men's professional golf. But if we don't come back together very quickly, then that could certainly change. Absolutely. Yeah. It's incredible insight. If you guys are here and you have any questions, uh, feel free to drop them in the chat. Make sure you subscribe to the preferred lines, YouTube channel as well. But you know, lives card that they have to play is always like you mentioned this endless pit of money. Um, the card that the PGA tour has is kind of the, the joker, right? And it's that you're not going to get OWGR points. And Jay Monahan's on the board of the OWGR. Keith Pelly's on the board of the OWGR. They're the ones essentially in the room reviewing the live application for this. One of the interesting and maybe overlooked elements of the John Rahm press conference was um, he has always been very critical of that live format. And they asked him about that. And he said, well, I know he didn't really, you know, say anything yeah. spectacular, but he basically kind of you know, side-eyed and said, I know that the captains have a say in this and they are very much willing to listen to their captains on this. Um, if they're able to change the format, do you think this tournament or the, I'm sorry, this organization or this league deserves official world golf ranking points? Yes. If the pathway to playing is better. And I understand that the PGA tour is starting to sort of strip away a lot of the bits and pieces of it that make it the, the best competitive product with more you know, limited fields, with more events that don't have cuts hmm. with sort of a, a secondary tier, but you're also, you're giving out 50 cards a year in a variety of different ways that you can make it to that tour. I mean, you can play the DP world tour, make the PGA tour. You can play yeah. corn Ferry tour. You now can go right back to Q school PGA and get tour it. You, right? And while live has helped with the live golf promotions. And so they're going to be three spots that are going there. That's, that's one tiny little sort of segment forward. Okay. But you know, you have guys right now that are contractually unable to lose their status on live. You could play the worst possible season. I understand that there's exemptions, mm -hmm. two or three year exemptions on the PGA tour, but there are also sort of standards that separate being a developmental tour and being a full fledged professional tour. The PGA tour champions doesn't get world golf ranking points. That's our 54 hole events with no cuts and a Q school that brings in five guys they are playing Q school right now for PGA tour champions. And all my buddies who are 50 and older who I've been analysts with 
you know, are just looking forward to playing some happy golf. And it's, they don't consider it exhibitions. It's definitely competition. They're playing for money, but none of them I know of are really complaining that they're not getting world golf ranking points, obviously different stage of their careers, but it's a whole lot similar on PGA tour champions to the format that live is playing 54 holes, no cut, and a very, very limited pathway to churn out people each and every year. So almost every other tour in the world is adhering to that sort of model whether it be yeah. from a significant amount of churn, the cuts each and every week to sort of determine where guys fall and, and not rewarding bad play. And the ones that don't are considered developmental tours. And those tours, their points are so minuscule to begin with. It, it's not even really worth sort of debating. Live wants to be considered like the PGA tour and the DP world tour. And they are so fundamentally different in their playing styles that it doesn't make sense to give them full world golf ranking points. Now, having said all of that, should those players be earning points? Yes. Like, should we figure out a system whereby every week of the 48 guys in the field, or maybe it now goes to 52 or 56 or whatever it's going to be, that the top 20 find a way to earn points? That there's some, I mean, come on, we got AI now. Just tell AI to build some sort of equitable formula to where those guys earning points against each other 14 times a year has some sort of depreciating return and they get some sort of value for it. If, my boys at Data Golf can figure out a way to right. rank those guys based off of their performance versus the rest of the field. Then we can figure out a path sort of moving forward. If again, we can come to some sort of cohesive agreement about what you are and how we are all existing together in this world of professional golf. So I think there is a pathway there, but the thing that I've really hated from the beginning of this, Joe, is just the absolute ego maniacal way that some of these guys, Norman included, have just beat around their chest. Like this isn't fair. It's like, you don't get to go and create something that doesn't follow any of the rules and then expect to be granted into that structure. That's just not how the world works. You wouldn't yeah. tell your kids that like you would right. want your kids to act like that at school. Now, if the rule is unfair or unjust, then have a conversation about it and let's figure it out. And let's adapt. But I think if I can't imagine John Rob made the jump without knowing that some of the things that he did not like, and he has been on the record, not liking about their structure, aren't going to change moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And it's hard. You know, I see both sides of it, right? I see that the egotistical nature of live just expecting that obviously they're they're just going to just up and grant them points is one yeah. thing. But I also think this it comes down a lot to the major championships who can kind of make their own rules. So if the Masters and the PGA Championship and the USGA say we're not going to utilize this as a criteria anymore because we don't feel like it accurately reflects the 60 or the 50 best players in the world anymore. And they go to an AI or they go to a data golf or they go to someone else who is able to create a more accurate list Then I think it, it renders the OWGR in trying to get these points useless, right? Sure. I understand your points are, I wonder what the biggest sticking point is. Is it the 54 holes? Is it the no cut? Because you know, Tiger jumped 430 spots for finishing, what, yeah. at the Hero? He jumped 430 spots, and they gave official world golf ranking points. You Now, in, I, I tweeted this out earlier today, that since 2010, there have been 14, since 2010, green jackets awarded, and eight of them in the Champions Dinner this yeah. year are going to be worn by players on the Live Golf Tour. Over half of them yeah. since 2010 are Live Golf guys. Like, it, it, it just feels disingenuous to the sport to use this ranking system that does not factor in John Rahm and Brooks Kepka and Cam Smith and Dustin Johnson. We can go on and on, but I feel like I just wonder what the biggest sticking point is. Is it the no cut yeah, great is question. promotion relegation or is it 54 holes or what can they change that they were like, OK, we're, we're going to give you some some points. I think it's churn. I think a lot of it has to do okay. with how are you churning players in and out? And Got I understand it. that the PGA tour is certainly taking care of their top 50 this year, top 70. And they've done all the math about how many guys in the top 50 going into this year with all those signature event starts. They think that there's going to be a significant or not significant, but at least an appropriate amount of churn to come out of that. They crunched all those numbers as they looked at the points. And I think that's a big part of it is that you just can't play an entire closed circuit over the course of an entire season and expect yeah. to then be given points year in and year out because you're just, you're just building those points off of one another. Now, maybe there's a way, you know, to hold up, like, what are your, 
what are your metrics like when you actually do play against other guys in majors? But now, you know, there are several guys in that tour that, you know, this year after maybe making it on world golf ranking points last year are out of exemptions this year. So there'll be fewer and fewer live guys in majors this year because of that sort of thing. So yes, they do need to come to some sort of an understanding. And like I said, we've got to find a way to get, I mean, eyeball test alone. We know some of the best players in the world are playing on live golf. So how can we, reward that i don't know but the solution isn't to give Sawan kim last year 14 weeks where the world golf ranking points for finishing 47th or 48th every single time he teed it up so like how do we how do we figure that out to the same point like you know the hero world challenge didn't have world golf ranking points for a while and then i think it was more of a tip of the cap to tiger as just sort of a you know thanks for all you've done for the sport we're going to recognize your event we're going to give these guys points Mm -hmm. you're already taking guys based off of world ranking in the first place. Right. You know, it is what it is. And we didn't really think much about it. And now all of a sudden, when you've got a really loud contrarian in the room screaming, Oh, wait a second. Like, why aren't we getting points? Then it makes a lot of sense. And maybe, maybe there'll be a solution moving forward, Joe, to where the hero world challenge only awards points to the top eight and live golf events only get points to the top 16 every week in their tournaments. And that's how we move forward in this to try and find an equitable solution to where points are still given in these types of events, but not to everybody that then continues this cycle of, look, if I'm on live or if I'm in signature events on the PGA tour, my world golf ranking is not going to dip, even though I'm playing like dog crap. Yeah. One of the, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you because you're inside the ropes each and every week, and you may not know the answer to this, but it's one of the things that I've always wondered is the uniqueness of professional golf, where they're essentially independent contractors. And there was this, this, this phrasing that was coming up two, three years ago all the time. Like this is a player run organization. That was the quote, right? But how, Apparently, the players didn't have any sort of voting rights at the time in terms of any major decision making. Um, this was made basically blind to every player except for maybe Rory McElroy got a phone call minutes before it actually happened. Were the players aware? Like, do they see the books of the tour? Are they, do they have any idea if they're aware of the tour's financial s- situation or standing? Like, these reserves that push these elevated events and the European tour agreement, they put $200 million into the European tour. Like, is there any sort of voting process or vetting from the players in this player run organization previously before now that they were able to um, have an opinion on some of these major decisions within the tour? Yeah, I can't answer the specifics of it. I just know that now that Tiger's on the board, you have more players than non-players on the board. So it wasn't that they didn't have votes. It was that there were non-player members on the PGA Tour board that there were more of them than there were players. So it was like, what, five to four or whatever it was when you looked at it. And we've since had some guys step off and you know, less roles. And obviously some of the players have taken on a, a larger role. It's really difficult, right? When you're a member organization, but your membership, once you win, you're a lifetime member of the PGA tour, but unless you're a card carrying member, then I think that affects what your sort of voting rights are, but you're voting for those individuals who are representing your vote at the highest level of the board. So when this was all going down and, and players were losing their mind and people were like, how could you not know in yeah. a previous life, I worked in nonprofit in the nonprofit world. So I was in alumni development and communications for both my alma mater and for my national fraternity, which were headquartered here in Indianapolis. And that's a me- like fraternities and sororities are member organizations and we're right. member governed. And so I worked at a headquarters <laughs> building. So I would, you know, I reported to effectively the Jay Monahan of the organization who was the hired CEO of the organization. And I worked in communications or whatever it might be. And so if I was going to send out an an email to every single chapter or whatever, I didn't need to go to the 5,000 undergraduates around the country and the 65,000 living alumni and get approval to send that email, even though they technically have a vote. Their vote is through individuals that come up to the board, that come up to an executive council, all this other sort of stuff. So it's the way that, you know, most businesses or most member run organizations work is that when you know, Joe member over here says, well, my voice wasn't heard. It's like, well, you don't have an actual vote. You're not going to the polls like on election day and casting a full democratic vote, but you have a player representative on the player advisory committee. You have a player director on the board of directors. Like those are the people that you need to be in communication with. 
So it, it felt a little disingenuous to me sometimes to hear yeah. players saying like, we're in the dark here. I think just a lot of players were just comfortable with where things were and, and probably weren't like keeping an eye on the day-to-day -day sort of business. But I would assume that if any player wanted to see the books, they have a right to at least ask about that and get an answer yeah. back. And it's probably been more questions about that in the last six months than there ever has been in the history of the PGA Tour. Because when things are running well, the members don't really care about who they've hired or who they've elected to make the decisions for them. And then when all of a sudden something goes a little bit different, they're wondering how that structure works. But yeah, I don't have necessarily the specifics. I just know from you know, how other nonprofits that I've been a part of sort of operate in terms of member organizations. And it's just that this has been so tumultuous that I think everybody just kind of wants answers and you're sort of learning where your power is, where your voice goes, and then who's really representing you. That's a great point with like using like your alumni associations. I think that I think that my HOA community right here, yeah. like I technically have a vote in there, but there, if they want to say we're going up $500 because we want new uh, Royal Palm trees on everyone. Sure. Like, I, I, I don't, if I asked to see the books, I'm sure I could, but when they you, don't, you should be able to see them billing me. I don't, I don't ask. It was, I love the angry people. I'm in the middle of it right now. I used to sit on an HOA board, in my old neighborhood, cause I ran the pool for them. And now I'm in a bigger neighborhood and I have no interest in doing that ever again. But I love it when people get mad, you know, and they're on the little, whatever next door or whatever it is. And yeah, they're yeah, like, yeah. why our dues are going up? Like, I have no idea what the budget is. And I respond, I was like, they mail a, copy of the budget with the statement that came in the mail like you can see what they're spending now i don't agree with how much we're spending on security but like yeah. do i really want to go to a meeting raise a fuss see if i can get 51 percent of my neighbors to vote to change the budget like no i, I mean if i really want to if i really want change then i run for the board or i go right. to the meetings like a lot of people yelling you know from next door for hoa or yelling to golf week magazine or some other podcast about how the pga tour is being run from a player standpoint like that stuff you know what get, you can get involved like there's ways to get involved and and see how your organization runs okay i have to ask you about this because you are the author of a fantastic book um called the science of golf how about this there it is how about the science of the golf ball? I need a take from you on the rollback. <laughs> We've gone 55 minutes without talking about rollback. What happened to that storyline? You know, it, it got we buried the lead, man. But but let's talk about it because uh, if anyone has crunched more numbers, and I've seen some disparity, I've seen the USGA come out and try wow. to tell me that I'm going to lose three to five yards, and PGA Tour pros are going to lose ten to fifteen. But I've also seen Keegan Bradley say that he's losing 45 with the new ball. And, and Lucas Glover came out today and said that he, he tried a new golf ball. I'm sure you saw it, and he's only hitting it 242 yeah. on average. Um, what is the actual impact, and what do these spin rates and club head speeds and numbers and data tell you that the impact may be? First, let's talk about at the professional level. Um, we've got five years until it gets rolled at the professional level. Mm -hmm. Based off of the new testing standards and the sort of the 5% I think is going to be lost, for the highest swing speeds, if we're kidding ourselves, if we don't think in five years that the manufacturers and then all of the optimization between equipment and track man, that we're not going to shrink this gap a little bit. I was thinking, I, about I think this week was, was so overblown in the outrage, but that still <laughs> makes it a bad deal for the USGA and the RNA because they created a lot of anger and discord between two different sides of, it's really a philosophical difference. There's two different ways to view the game. I've learned that from my old podcast. I learned that from writing the book. There's two very different ways that people view golf. And I know I'm getting away from sort of the professional answer. I think that they're going to optimize their swings and you will see very little difference in distance off the tee when the new ball comes out in 2028. But I will say this, the caveat in the release from the USGA and the RNA is that they said that this allows them to take the first step and the next steps are going yeah. to be, you know, off center hits. Base. So really looking at the coefficient of restitution on the, the golf club itself, the moment of inertia of, of how we've taken away a lot of the physics of the golf club and the things that should happen when a ball's not hit in the sweet spot, we've moved that sweet spot. We've enlarged it so much with technology, even though the driver heads aren't getting bigger, their construction has gotten so much better that you can get the same COR from an off center hit than you do from the sweet spot for some of these pros. And so maybe they're going to adjust that a little bit and bring a little bit of skill back into the game. But to the sort of broader point, 
is you know a third of the golf balls that you can go buy on the shelf right now conform with the new with the new test. So hmm. if you're a golfer and you're a 15 handicap and you're playing, and I actually don't know which balls they are. I keep saying what if I'm this playing Titleist Velocities. Are those right? Like, like I keep thinking of like the old Titleist DT Solo. I used to sell yeah. a lot of those when I was a club pro 20 years ago, and it's a low compression golf ball, which I'm sure doesn't have great energy transfer, which means it probably is okay in these types of tests okay. because if you're swinging that hard, it's actually a bad golf ball for you. So I think if you go out and you hit that, you're not going to see really any change. And so the USGA has really tried to hammer that home is that, hey, you might be playing a golf ball right now. You're never going to have to change. Like they'll still be able to manufacture this and you're going to be fine. They say that for almost every amateur, every club below a five iron in your bag is not going to see any distance change. So it's really about controlling the length off the tee. Um, but to the philosophical difference, there are a lot of people in this world that view golf as it's supposed to be a challenge. It's supposed to be played the way that it was invented. It's supposed to be played on the ground. It's supposed to be played, you know, to where it, the idea is to struggle and to try and get better. And then there are others. A lot of them have gotten to the game more in the modern space in the last 20 years who want to embrace the technology. They want to hit it far. They want to get it in the air. They want technology to help them make it easier and more fun. And those have just, I mean, there's just two completely different ways to view the game. And we're yelling at each other across this abyss um, I won't tell you which side I'm on because I don't even know if I have a side at this point in time, Joe, when it's all yeah. said and done. And it's it's just unfortunate because it created a ton of anger this week. And I really think by the time you and I have to play a NASA in 2030 with whatever the new balls are, that hell, I'll be 48. I already would have lost 5% of distance <laughs> by the time I get to that age. I don't really know if we're going to notice any difference, to be honest. Now, if they shrink the drivers right after that, like two years later and things start to really dramatically change, I'll be interested. But yeah, it's been a really weird week because I think people have just camped on their sides of how they already felt. And then yeah. they're each sort of bastardizing the data to fit what they want it to say. Totally. Um, and again, back to the empathy, like I have empathy for Jay Monahan. I have a lot of empathy for the folks at the USGA and the RNA. And I know some people don't, but they put in thousands of hours of interviews and testing and all of the data and <laughs> While we can sit here and debate whether or not they should be rel uh, regulating distance for the average golfer or should be creating rules for the highest levels of the game, that's what they view their mission to be. And I don't think they came about this announcement this week kind of willy-nilly. Um, I think if they were going to make a rollback rule, they should have just gone way stricter with it because I don't really think it's going to have any impact, but yet we're yelling about it anyway. Yeah, that is the thing that I wonder at the – okay, so – we had talked for years that, and and I think everyone was on this side, that distance on a golf course at the professional level doesn't make it hard. It can be 79, it can be 8,000 yards. It's not what makes it hard for these guys. You look at when they're where they're going at Pinehurst this year. The, the distance is not what makes Pinehurst difficult. Um, are it they, is pretty long from the tips, though. I mean... For I got us, Corin Crenshaw stepped it out to like seventy seven hundred. So I mean, you can it's pretty deep from. The is it going to play that yeah. this year? Because I saw probably I thought not. It was they never do. They never okay. do. But yeah. Anyways, I think firm and fast conditions and extremely penal greens. If you miss in a small area, are typically what holds back scores. Like you look at Kapalua is one of the longest courses. If it's wide, if it's soft, if it's easy, the right. distance doesn't matter to these guys. Um, is that was the decision made like what was the goal was the goal to protect golf like landmark golf courses at the professional level so we're making this yeah. universal change to protect augusta national and to protect st andrews which i think are the two that um were most in mind in my opinion when they thought about making this is is we want to make sure we see long irons into augusta national and we want to make sure everyone isn't hitting driver gap wedge into every single hole at st andrews and this is the philosophical divide, right? So this goes yeah. back to me as a play-by-play -play announcer of golf is that you have people who want the same winning score relative to par from <laughs> the 1960s to be the score, the standard that we measure golfers today. We have, you know, I was on Sirius XM yesterday and Alan Shipnuck was on as a guest and he's definitely in the pro rollback community and that doesn't, there's nothing wrong with that, but his biggest thing was he says that the PGA tour or professional golf in general is a boring product compared to what it used to be. And I couldn't disagree anymore with that. Right. Like I would much rather call guys hitting scoring shots into as many greens as possible. And a couple of times a year, do I like it when pars a good score? Sure. But some of those rounds are brutal. It's 
you know, five hours of watching guys miss, you know, 13 of 18 greens. Like it's nice to see him humanized a few times. And there's been a lot of other advancements in it, but you know, par is just a construct to help with scoring. And we've, I think, especially at the championship level for the USGA and the RNA, they've become so protective of that, of that par has to be that defining value of what makes a difficult test of golf that when all of a sudden guys are laughing past that score in particular areas, you know, they have to look at that a little bit. I am way more sensitive to the environmental concerns. And they've talked a lot about that sustainability and environmental yeah. stuff with golf courses. I don't necessarily know if the ball going too far is the number one reason why, you know, we're running out of water, you know, on some of these golf courses. Like I think there are much bigger issues as to why we are running out of water mainly like we're so obsessed, especially in this country with green grass that we, we, we dump water on it all the time. So, I mean, let's, if we watered the golf courses less, could we still build the back tee? I, I don't know like what the answers are in all these places. So it's, um, it's really interesting because you start to see it from those two different perspectives. And, yeah. you know, I've watched enough PGA tour players hit golf shots from 130 yards to know that not every single one of them goes inside of five feet. And so sometimes yeah. the ones that do some days are really fun to call. And, um, I, I'm okay with the variety. I'm okay with 30 under par winning a golf tournament, you know, a couple of times a year. I'm, but I, I think it's definitely a reaction to listen. We want these championship tests and there's some trickle down to about how long the game has gotten at the elite amateur level, the college level, and a lot of these other courses that are kind of on the fringe of, Hey, we would like to host not a PGA tour event, but we'd love to host a USAM or something like this. We really want to be considered like an elite golf course but we don't have what we think is the space to host that championship because they feel like they have to stretch it out so that par is rewarded. Yeah. And that's kind of, I think how we arrived at the table in the first place. I heard that talking point as well in terms of green space and environmental, uh, sort of narratives from the USGA to, to me, part of it felt like, like the live, grow the game narrative and that, Okay, so and you mentioned the green grass, like take LACC, which hosted this past U.S. Yep. Open, for instance. That place on Tuesday was browned out. Players browned were out. complaining that it was hard, and they dumped a ton of water on yep. it Wednesday and greened the whole place up and softened the course, and it played too easy. Everyone yep. – Golf Twitter went nuts about how easy that U.S. Open played, and they can't wait for Pinehurst. Well, guess what? If they water the shit out of Pinehurst, it ain't yep. going to play even par this year. It is very much dependent upon the course conditions, and that's what I wonder. Let me sort of close with your opinion on this question, and you may have already answered it, but when this golf ball goes into effect, will it have a greater impact on relative scoring average for a professional golfer? A, B, a 10 handicapper like myself, or C, neither. Well, you're up to a 10? What happened? Well, 9.7. Yeah, things you were like things, a seven when I played with you that one time. There Weren't was a 93 and a 94 back to back recently that were um, embarrassing. All right. What was the C again? I got distracted by C your was neither. Yeah. So, so uh, do you think scoring average goes up relative to to? to what we expect of a PGA tour pro. Like, are we going to see scoring average go up a half a stroke for them or two strokes for a 10 handicap because the course is longer or C it impacts neither and everything you, everyone basically plays the same. I will, I will walk the USGA token line here. And I will say that if there is a scoring change that the scoring average will go up for the elite player and the professionals, and that you okay. will not see that big of a difference at the amateur level. Like I, I honestly believe that that's what they're trying to create in this distance rollback. I think that Lucas Glover, who's on Sirius XM last night, he debuted his, his own show. And that's where he talked about the ball going a little bit yeah. softer. Both he and Keegan are Strixon guys. And so I don't know if Strixon's kind of messed around with building a ball that's going to be like that. But I think that was a little extreme, the numbers that they had, especially given the fact that there's still four years of R&D to go before they actually have to give these guys a ball to hit out there. But let's just say, for example, that they're, it's half of that and that Lucas Glover truly does lose 20 yards off the tee. And if the PGA Tour then elects to continue playing golf courses on average at, what, 69.50 or um, 7,000, I think was about the average length of most golf courses this year on the PGA Tour, then, yeah, you would see you would see it go up a, a little bit. But again, I think from a swing speed standpoint, I think from a playability standpoint, I think, again, because there are a lot of balls that are already conforming in the first place that, yeah, it would be the professionals that will see a, um, a 
a slight dip in scoring. But again, I think it's so marginal we won't notice. Will, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you join me. I truly value your opinion. As always, you've given me an hour tonight and put the kids to bed early so that you could come in and talk all things that are ever-changing in the world of professional golf. Make sure to follow him at Will Haskett on Twitter. We will be tuning in in a few weeks when, um, gosh, it's going to be like a, a, a deep breath when we actually like tee off back at the Tournament of Champions and just feel like we're back ah, and not, not talking. Tournament of champions anymore it's just the century because we got a lot of guys there that didn't win last year we've expanded the field just the century point. things are changing too much for every me man. Time, like, every I, day it's changing every day it's changing but it was great to have you join us uh, make sure to check will out on sirius radio and, and everywhere else that he is um, i appreciate your time and thank you once again for joining us on the show my pleasure all right talk to you soon all right, guys, anyone who's hung here, thank you so much. I genuinely appreciate your support. I will be back here in a few weeks to do a 2020 tour, 2024. I'm getting tour and four mixed up, uh, sort of season preview and some things to outlook in regards to the PGA tour. We'll talk a little live as well. Uh, I wanted to get into some of that with Will, but there was just too much to talk about tonight. Uh, thank you all for joining the show. Make sure to give it a like on the way out. Subscribe to that Preferred Lines YouTube page. Uh, if you want to support the show even further, preferredlinesgolf.com. You can get yourself a t-shirt. Uh, make sure to go over there and all of that goes into a little kitty that helps me keep this thing going. My name is at Joe Idoni. This has been another episode of Preferred Lines. I hope that you all have a great and powerful week ahead of you. Uh, great to see you. We'll talk soon. I'm out of here. Peace.